Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associates newsletter audiocast. I am your host, Dr. M, and this is volume 12, letters number 10 and 12. So before we get started with the newsletter, let's talk about the podcast that was just released, Nurture Shock. Ashley Merriman, the author of Nurture Shock, is a social science writer of distinction who's been frequently seen writing for Newsweek, Time Magazine, New York Times, and the Washington Post. She's been cited in over 40 academic journals, 260 books, and texts written around the world. She had received her educational degrees from uh, a Bachelor of Fine Arts from the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts and her law degree from Georgetown University. She also achieved a certificate in Irish studies from Queen's University in Belfast, Northern Ireland. She is a great speaker, and we take a hard look through the social science of two topics uh, on the newsletter. It is a fantastic discussion on uh, parenting related to encouragement versus praise of the ability, as well as other discussions. So I hope you enjoy the podcast with Ashley Merriman. Okay, so... This week, we're going to talk about effort and resilience. Why do we give our kids trophies for playing? I hold that this is really akin to taking away the natural drive to succeed and improve. We're developing a generation of children who think that they are great without having achieved anything. This is what I called the entitled and shallow. Over the years, my children and I played Stratego, cards, and chess often. I never let them win on purpose. For a long time, my son Thomas could not beat me in Stratego, but then one day I didn't give him enough credit and he caught my flag. I was shocked. He smiled and preened. We had such a great moment. He was proud of his performance because he persevered and not because he showed up. This was exactly what I had hoped he would feel from that moment. You know, for kids, they really need to know that their existence, their life, is a process of trying to be better every time, to learn, to work, to do the best you can within the situation. And to give them trophies for showing up or tell them they're great before they've done anything saps that natural willpower for them to want to achieve, especially when things get difficult. If they think they're great and then something is really difficult, they may crumble under the pressure instead of really sticking to the work and being stick to as some people call it. So we should be encouraging effort and resilience while praising only significant outcomes and not participation. This is not to be confused with a lack of love when failure or half-effort occurs. One always loves, but education on how to improve and then encouragement of that effort is the key. Not every child will go to Duke or turn pro in soccer, but every child can be their best and succeed at their God-given potential level. You know, when we also look at things like self-esteem and strength, I think, you know, in the past, I've noted that at children's soccer practices, the coaches expect, frankly, they require that parents stay over 100 feet from the practice field. I think this is a great idea. The kids can play without the constant verbal banter of their parents, including myself during my years on the sideline. And it also allows them to fall, cry, get up and play on without their parents being involved. These are really important steps. It's self-identification, uh, you know, it just really growing into their own identity. If they are truly hurt, 
they have a coach who provides support, and then the fail-safe parent is around the corner, or hopefully there is a medical professional on site, and that's how things get really taken care of. The hierarchy of support, the village of support that exists in these frameworks allows a child to understand that adults are there to help keep them safe. And unconditional love is and should be always present at the parent level. So these are some of the thoughts today in that level, but there's a lot more of this in the podcast with Ashley Merriman. Okay, section two. Non-nutritive sweeteners are a net negative for your intestinal microbiome, says a new study. To identify possible mechanisms, quote, my, by which maternal consumption of non-nutritive sweeteners increases obesity risk in offspring, we reconstructed the major alterations in the cecal microbiome of three-week-old offspring of obese dams, consuming high-fructose and high-fat diets with or without aspartame or stevia by shotgun metagenomic sequencing. High-throughput gene sequencing was performed for dams, three- and 18-week-old offspring. Maternal consumption of sweeteners altered cecal microbial composition and metabolism of propionate and lactate in their offspring. The offspring daily weight, body gain, liver weight, and body fat were positively correlated to the relative abundance of key microbes and enzymes involved in succinate propionate production, while negatively correlated to that of lactose degradation and lactate production. The altered propionate lactate production in the cecum of weanlings from aspartame and stevia consuming dams implicates an altered ratio of dietary carbohydrate digestion, mainly lactose, in the small intestine versus microbial fermentation in the long and large intestine. The reconstructed microbiome alterations could explain increased offspring body weight and body fat. This study demonstrates that intense sweet tastings have a lasting and intergenerational effect on gut microbiota, microbial metabolites, and host health. End quote. This comes to us from Wang et al. in a recent publication, 2022. So the story of non-nutritive sweeteners is yet to be fully told. It is clear that you are better off using non-nutritive sweeteners if it is a choice between them and sugar. However, it may, it may not be as great as we think over time if consumed in high volume. If the microbes are able to change by the consumption of these non-nutritive sweeteners in a way that causes our metabolism of normal food to change in a negative way, then the net result of that will be, unfortunately, in our um, detriment. Section three, sugar is probably a driver of altered microbiome in the intestine leading to increased inflammatory bowel disease. From the study, quote, the higher prevalence of inflammatory bowel disease in Western countries point to Western diet as a possible IBD risk factor. High sugar, which is linked to many non-communicable diseases, is a hallmark of the Western diet, but its role in IBD remains unknown. Here we studied the effects of simple sugar such as glucose and fructose on colitis pathogenesis in wild-type mice. These mice fed 10% glucose in drinking water or high-glucose diet developed severe colitis induced by dextrin sulfate sodium. High glucose fed mice also developed a worsened colitis compared to glucose untreated mice. Short-term intake of high glucose or fructose did not trigger inflammatory responses in healthy gut, but markedly altered gut microbiota composition. 
in particular, the abundance of the mucus-degrading bacteria Acromantia mucinophilia and Bacteroidetes fragilis were increased. Consistently, bacteria-derived mucolytic enzymes were enriched, leading to erosion of the colonic mucus layer of sugar-fed wild-type mice. Sugar-induced exacerbation of colitis was not observed when mice were treated with antibiotics or maintained in a germ-free environment, suggesting that altered microbiota play a critical role in sugar-induced colitis pathogenesis. Furthermore, germ-free mice colonized with microbiota from sugar-treated mice showed increased colitis susceptibility. Together, these data suggest that intake of simple sugars predisposes to colitis and enhances its pathogenesis via modulation of a gut microbiota in mice, end quote. This comes from Khan Science Translational Medicine 2022. So for me, this data set is not surprising as it adds to a large body of evidence that simple sugar, specifically sucrose or glucose and fructose in high quantity, may be driving pathways, metabolic pathways, that lead to negative health trajectories. And specifically, we're looking at the microbiome in this case, which is, again, you know, one of the hot topics that I like to look at, because it, it, it appears that the microbiome, which is supposed to be a symbiotic organism within us, is now being turned into a pathogenic organism by our lifestyle choices. And in this data set, it looks like colitis or inflammation of the intestine that can drive to inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's or colitis can be predisposed to occur by the overconsumption of simple sugars. And where does that occur the most? That occurs via tons and tons of liquid beverages. Right, so sugar sweetened tea, soda Kool Aid, Gatorade, Powerade, uh, you know, any of these beverages in high quantity could predispose certain individuals with the right host genetics to develop inflammatory bowel disease by altering the microbiota. So keep that in mind again as another reason why we shouldn't give our kids large volumes of these beverages. Again, think of the work by uh, Rick Johnson where we talked about how fructose drives metabolic pathways in humans that are dysfunctional. Um, you know, just the, the actual liver fat deposition, the inflammation and the blood pressure rise. There are myriad ways that we're gonna skin this cat to see sugar is a problem in high quantity. No ifs, ands, or buts here, folks. It is just what it is, and we need to take that very seriously. Okay, so let's move on to volume 12, letter two. In the podcast during uh, that week, we discussed putting it all together, which was just a tour of the Rick Johnson fructose story continued, where I took a deeper dive um, reading parts of his book, actually, and sections of the human physiology that are occurring in the world of the survival switch related to uh, longevity in humans in periods of starvation. So podcast, putting it all together, number three is available if you want to listen to that. Uh, we get really deep in that one. Um, uh, you know, sort of looking at all of Dr. Johnson's work. So section one, trauma. What happens to us negatively can pass over us or stick with us, leading to stagnation and frustration. When a child lives through trauma, two paths will present themselves. This is a, simpl this is a simplification of a complex reality, but nonetheless, two paths do present themselves. They can learn to overcome and grow from the pain and become more grounded in the new norm, 
or conversely, they can fall into victim mode and become the teller of their story from a place of less than shame and or anger. It is clear which of these two paths serves the child and the adolescent. What then determines the path taken? Why do two people experience the same event in dramatically different ways? I'm going to only focus on the upstream issues that drive this dual reality and not the trauma itself for this piece. Quote, Epidemiological studies reveal the importance of family function and early life events as predictors of health in adulthood. As adults, victims of childhood physical or sexual abuse, emotional neglect, family conflict, and conditions of harsh, inconsistent discipline are at considerably greater risk for mental illness, as well as for obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. These difficult conditions, in part, define the developmental origin of mental illness in adolescence and adult life, end quote. This comes from Michael Meany et al. in 2005. So epigenetic data would tell us that the earliest life experiences set our genes and thus self up for a path to be chosen. The brilliant work of Dr. Moshe Schiff, spelled S-Z-Y-F, has illustrated this pathway. Dr. Schiff and Dr. Meany have been studying the effects of environmental triggers on the genome and have conclusively proven that behaviors and traits that we see as newborns and children are dictated in large part by maternal, environmental, and lifestyle experiences. The DNA can be affected after conception well into childhood, which is both beneficial and detrimental based on the signal received. This comes from Dr. Schiff et al. in 2012. Since the days of naturalists, um, Charles Darwin and Francois, Jean-Francois Lamarck, humans have thought about the changes that occur within mammalian species as they attempt to adapt to the ever-changing environment. Current times are no different. As temperatures and sea levels rise, food has dramatically changed, sedentary attitudes plague humans, mental stress is at an all-time high, with all of the media negativity and so much more to deal with. All mammals have cassettes of genes with the sole purpose of dealing with extremes of all environmental inputs. Some genes encode for stress proteins like the class of temperature shock proteins, heat and cold shock. Others encode for adrenal gland cortisol receptors to handle differential psychological and physiological stress. Further yet, are groups that encode for receptors that sense any physical perturbations. Taken altogether, we see a picture of mammals having the ability to change as needed to stress or environmental shifts in rapid sequence. If a stress or shifts do not occur, then logically there will be no adaptation. Whether this is good or bad is now being understood. Let's look at the hallmark research of by Dr. Schiff. He looked at the response of rat offspring to differential social grooming and subsequent stress responses over time. Animals that were poorly groomed by a mother rat had higher long-term stress responses because of brain stress receptor changes that occurred. This study showed that a baby is primed epigenetically to expect a tough world if his mother was not a loving groomer. Conversely, the groomed offspring had reduced receptors for stress expecting a happier world. Environmental signals as those above can be positive or negative, but they have an effect nonetheless. It is up to us to figure out which inputs are beneficial. Quote, the findings from the animal work has also been replicated in humans. Suderman, McGowan, 
Hallett, Meany, and Schiff showed that a similar pattern of response to childhood abuse is associated with DNA methylation differences throughout the genomic region spanning the six and one half million base pair regions centered at the GR-NR3C1 gene in the hippocampus of adult humans. The DNA, the DNA methylation differences associated with child abuse bear a striking resemblance to DNA methylation differences between adult offspring of high and low maternal care rats. This provides evidence for an analogous cross-species epigenetic and transcriptional response to the early life environment. End quote. Again, Schiff et al. 2012. So, these researchers have given us a baseline for understanding how adverse childhood events affect some children more than others, i.e., why does the same event affect one person taking them down a negative path while the other chooses to rise above? The answer appears to be heavily related to early epigenetic events that occur in utero, postnatally, and in the earliest years of a child's life. Whether these stressful events happen to a child in utero or after birth, the epigenetic marks causing disease worsen with increasing stress in all studies that have looked at them. There are exponential ways to alter gene expression. They are called daily life, and life is always changing. Thus, it behooves us to provide a safe and consistent environment for mothers and children to grow in to mitigate these epigenetic trauma risks on the front end as well as the later years. Altering our genetic expression is called epigenetic plasticity. It turns out to be highly evolutionarily protective in an ever-changing environment. For thousands of years, it has served us. However, if our DNA can be read in so many different ways depending on our changing world, then why are we falling apart as a species? Why do we have the highest rates of mental health issues now? This question is related in part to modern society. The answer is that humans, in an effort to be comfortable and independent, have negatively altered the environment to a breaking point. We are inundated by chemical exposure, increased mental stress, and poor quality food. We have lost our family support structures, whether it is the extended family or even just a two-parent structure. The negative exposures are high and structural supports are low. We are receiving poor epigenetic signals routinely from very young ages. In essence, we are the poorly licked and groomed mice or rats. These signals are especially hammering the poorest among us, as we have seen repeatedly during this pandemic. We no longer have the historical stresses of food scarcity, temperature swings in a non-climate controlled environment, and microbial friend exposures of the recent past. We no longer spend enough time in self-care and protection of our mothers and children. We far too often see single mothers doing it all for their children. We far too often see married women working and still doing all the child-rearing responsibilities after work. We far too often see grandparents raising their grandchildren with less energy available and vigor that the task requires. This is no fault of theirs, as age plays the factor. While we honor and love the hard work of each person as described, the answer has to be more support and safety for these mother, grandparent, and child groupings. We need to return to the days of it takes a village of loving and caring people to raise a society. We need to raise the bar on the quality of life for the child or the children of this country. You may ask, what does this have to do with trauma and what does it have to do with the trauma that is endured? It is my belief that all the upstream epigenetic events are the keys to slowing the train of poor mental health 
that allows trauma to be more devastating wherever we meet it. We could be more resilient as a society with stronger upstream supports that provide better epigenetic marks. In essence, we could be the highly licked and groomed rats. So I have a link in the newsletter to two podcasts that are worth your time. Uh, actually, three podcasts that are worth your time. Two on the adult chair, episode number 293 with Michael Unbroken, and episode number 304 with Eileen Smith. And then also Tim Ferriss, episode 571 with Boyd Vardy, V-A-R-T-Y. That's another really, really good one that uh, I encourage you all to listen to. So, you know, let's recap. Trauma is a really difficult topic to discuss, let alone live with. I purposely, in this, time, in this episode, did not dive deep into trauma in and of itself, as that would take pages and pages. But if you look at society, we need to make it okay to talk about trauma and look for the effective measures of resolution. You know, for me, I have great hope for the emerging field of psychedelic therapy for trauma sufferers. The early research is very impressive. Outcomes are far better than conventional therapy and daily medication. So, you know, this is a mind-altering therapy, and if it becomes prime time, we will see people shed their masks of pain and trauma, finding a more wholesome and authentic self with which to live with. I know this sounds a bit new age, but let me tell you, it is far from it. It is truly impressive scientific research. But the, the epigenetic discussions are here for you to start thinking about as a framework for how do we move forward knowing that, that epigenetic marks are there from trauma that's occurred to us. How do we undo them? Well, you undo them by working really hard on the upstream issues that are there. Lifestyle-based factors, stress reduction, quality food, therapy, you know, meditation. All of these pieces are part and parcel to a healing environment. So I'll end with this. Living with trauma is difficult, but important. Rising above trauma is even more so. All right, section two. A really interesting article drags us into an entirely new space, the Virome. I've been watching this information for a few years and is in its infancy. How virus that reside in our intestines, like our microbiome of bacteria, affects us is still unknown. But today we have a first study to look at this possibility and this possible reality. They affect our cognition. I know this is silly and Star Trekian, but I suspect it is real. What I think we are going to find out is that organisms, including viruses, bacteria, and the macrobes like parasites, live in harmony together throughout our hollow spaces, which include the nasal respiratory tract, gastrointestinal tract, and vaginal vault. They compete for real estate and dominance, but symbiotically like all natural ecosystems. The lions never want to eat all of the antelope, lest they lose a food source. They all work together to provide for their survival and vitality, in which, in turn, provides our bodies with the same. What we now know definitively is that they are absolutely affected by our lifestyle choices. When we head down the path of modern American processed food intake, sloth activity, chemical exposure, we push organisms to a certain pattern that leads to less vitality for them and therefore us. Certain groups take over the real estate, and they are not in keeping with our best health. We also know that they affect how we think and act. So, crazy to think that this could be the reality. No pun intended there. From the article. Growing 
evidence implicates the gut microbiome and cognition. Viruses, the most abundant life entities on the planet, are a commonly overlooked component of the gut virome, dominated by caudovirales and microviridae bacteriophages. Here we show in a discovery in a validation cohort that subjects with increased caudovirales and syphoviridae levels in the gut microbiome had better performance in executive processes and verbal memory. Conversely, increased microviridae levels were linked to greater impairment in executive abilities. Microbiota transplantation from human donors with increased specific caudovirales levels led to increased scores in novel object recognition tests in mice and upregulated memory promoting immediate early genes in the prefrontal cortex. Supplementation of the Drosophila diet with the 936 group of lactococcal sulfoviridae bacteriophages resulted in increased memory scores and upregulation of memory-involved brain genes. Thus, bacteriophages warrant consideration as novel actors in the microbiome brain axis. This comes to us from Mineris, M-A-Y-N-E-R-I-S, cell host and microbe. So what we now know is the beginning of a period of study in the world of viruses can affect us mentally. Again, this is pretty crazy stuff. So we'll be watching the data as it pours out. Again, I wonder how much of this is going to be seen when we look deeper at SARS-2 what it did to people's brains. We saw this with losing sense of smell and others, but what else went on? What other thought processes went south with people in their brains from a virus? Some pretty incredible data we'll be watching. Section three, gestational diabetes and diabetes mellitus and a child's health. What is the latest research on the effect of a diet, gestational diabetes inflammation on a newborn and a child? So gestational diabetes is a growing national problem during pregnancy. It is diagnosed when a woman without previously diagnosed diabetes develops chronic elevated blood glucose levels after becoming pregnant. This is usually the result of chronic insulin resistance from sedentary behavior and poor quality macronutrient food choices over a long time pre-pregnancy. Consequences of gestational diabetes for the pregnant female include increased risk of maternal cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes mellitus, and birth complications, including failure to progress and eclampsia of hypertension. One recent study from pediatric allergy immunology noted that an almost doubling of asthma risk in children born to mothers was gestational diabetes. The study group had 62% ethnic makeup as African American. This comes from Adgent, A-D-G-E-N-T et al. 2021. So, Therefore, there is probably a host genetic uh, ethnic slant to this information as well as knowing that, you know, the doubling of asthma risk is a big deal if you have gestational diabetes. So, again, as an OBGYN, I would highly encourage everybody to start talking about the dietary aspects of pregnancy. Children born to mothers with gestational diabetes also have a twofold risk of developing diabetes themselves. This comes to us from Blotsky et al. in 2019. There's solid evidence that gestational diabetes drives epigenetic changes in the pathway of macronutrient metabolism, how we metabolize fats, sugars, and uh, proteins. This comes to us from Ruchat, R-U-C-H-A-T et al. 2013. Non-alcoholic liver disease associated with maternal gestational diabetes. Veselovsky et al. 2016, W-E-S-E-L-O-W-S-K-I. I'm going to take a deeper dive at this with Dr. Rick Johnson in the summer after his new research was published on the associations of fructose and preeclampsia. But let's just say the modifiable factors for a pregnant 
or pre-pregnant woman right now are centered around reducing insulin sensitivity, excuse me, reducing insulin dysfunction, inflammation, and hormonal balance. Number one, increase movement to reduce blood glucose levels in the bloodstream. Number two, eliminate fructose-based beverages and processed foods. Number three, avoid dehydration. Number four, avoid all alcohol while trying to get pregnant and during pregnancy breastfeeding stages. Number five, avoid excess salt intake. Number six, reduce mental stress which drives cortisol excess. Number seven, increase fiber intake and avoid drugs and chemicals that disrupt the microbiome. Number eight, increase dramatically your consumption of vegetables and fruits with high ORAC scale of antioxidants which in turn quenches the effects of the survival switch. Number nine, high glycemic foods should be avoided. They can spike your blood glucose level. Number 10, avoid eating out of chains or fast food as fast food choices are less healthy and promote insulin dysregulation in general. Preventing the risk to one's offspring makes a lot of sense and boy does it save money over the long haul. Section four, autoimmune type one diabetes is on the rise post-COVID-19 infection in children according to a new study in JAMA Pediatrics. The incidence of this troublesome autoimmune blood sugar problem increased by large numbers. Quote from the article, new diabetes diagnosis were 166% and 31% more likely to occur among patients with COVID-19 than those without COVID-19 during the pandemic and 116% more likely to occur among those with COVID-19 than those with acute respiratory infections during the pre-pandemic period. Non-SARS-CoV-2 respiratory infection was not associated with diabetes. These findings are consistent with previous research demonstrating association between SARS-CoV-2 infection and the diabetes in adults. The inclusion of only patients less than 18 years of age from this study related to COVID-19 in a non-COVID-19 healthcare variability group could account for the lower magnitude of increased diabetes risk in this group compared to the risk in the other group. In addition, patients without COVID-19 and health verity had higher hospitalization rates than those did in the IQVIA group, suggesting more severe disease at the index encounter for the health verity comparison group, end quote, Barrett et al., 2022. Take-home point here is real simple. We have, a long, we have long known that viral infections can trigger autoimmune diseases in select individuals with host genetics, predispos- predisposing them to such things. The troublesome part of this reality is a young age of disease often portends a difficult road ahead for these children unless they eat very healthy and exercise well to mitigate the risks of pancreatic dysfunction. So for me, a lot of this discussion really centers around, you know, again, what are the upstream risks of hopefully preventing autoimmune disease? Because you can't avoid these viruses. So we need to work on all the things that prevent the risk of autoimmune disease. Links to the articles, as always, are in the newsletter. And... The only last thing I have to share today is, you know, I was uh, a free thought. I think, therefore, I am. Many people know this as being a statement from the French philosopher René Descartes. You know, this has been said forever, hundreds of years, but it remains true today as it ever did. And when it comes to, you know, trauma or existence or life or, you know, just taking good care of ourselves— what you believe will become your future, your outcome. So if you believe you are going to be a healthy person and you're going to take care of yourself and you're going to eat well, you will do so. If you believe that you can't because you're not good enough or you have other reasons to the why, the likelihood is you'll follow that path. So as always, hug those kids, 
That's the end of this SPA newsletter audio cast, volume 12, letters 10 and 12. Have a great day. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter, audio cast, is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional. It is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.